Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. So, on today's show, Rishul Prize shortlisted author Mandy Beaumont will join me to talk about her debut short story collection, Wild Fearless Chests, a collection at once darkly disturbing and lyrically written. We'll be discussing Mandy's book and the role prizes and fellowships have played in her path to publishing. And just a content warning for our discussion of the book, uh, it may cover topics including sexual and family violence, but that will be all coming up later in the hour, but very, very soon. In Retail Therapist, an essay recently published in Overland, bookseller Freya Howarth ponders what it means to be good at what is seen and paid as unskilled work, particularly as a woman. Winding in representations of retail workers in literature from Emile Zola's The Ladies' Paradise, as it is sometimes uh, translated, Au Bonheur des Dames, apologies to any French speakers, to Sakaya Murata's brilliantly oddball satire, The Convenience Store Woman. Freya will join me soon to discuss the art of literary essays and the very real concerns at the heart of this one. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Keiko's whole body resonates with the sound of the store. She modulates her behaviour from her smile and cheery tone of her voice to the exact words she speaks to align with the company manual. She is the perfect worker. I recognise myself in this description in the habits I have developed over nine years of working in bookshops. I'm good at this. Sometimes I'm even great at this. But what does it mean to be good at what is seen and paid as unskilled work? These are edited extracts from the start of Retail Therapist, an essay recently published in Overland. In it, bookseller Freya Howarth ponders the lot of retail workers, particularly women, and she winds in representations of retail workers from literature, ranging from Emile Zola's Au Bonheur des Dames or The Ladies of Paradise, The Ladies Paradise rather, sorry to all French speakers for that terrible pronunciation. Um, and as referenced earlier in that quote, Sakaya Murata's brilliantly oddball satire, The Convenience Store Woman. Freya joins me now to discuss her essay and the topical issues at its heart. Freya Howith, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. Hi. Now, this is quite a, um, you know, I mean, it's an incredibly topical essay. It's sort of really, um, you know, an answer to some of the recent changes that have happened um, for retail workers in that many of the penalty rates formally accorded them under law have been obviously challenged, um, which has led, um, now that the laws have changed, many people who operate retail chains have decided that they don't need to pay their workers any penalty rates. So that's kind of where you've kicked off with um, considering some of these things. But in great literary essay style, you started with an image from a book. Can you talk about how, you know, why you decided to embark on uh, writing this essay in the way that you have? Well, when I first started writing it, I think I actually put the topical news story element first because I was 
in a course where we were learning about writing for different publications and I kind of thought that that was a way in but it came back quite quickly from the first round of edits with the suggestion that I change it and I liked it so much better that way because that's kind of how I had approached asking the question in my own mind it was always kind of to go straight to the books and straight to the literature and try to find a sort of a almost like a sideways approach into a question that I've been wondering about. You start with a sort of reference to um, Sakia Murata's uh, book, The Convenience Store Woman, a recent translation of a Japanese book. Uh, it's a, it's really, I kind of love this book. It's it's satirical. It's very weird. Um, the character at its heart uh, really is someone who struggles to integrate with society. I think it, when you first start reading it, she sort of seems a little psychopathic, I think is fair to say. But very quickly, you start to see how her job as a con- convenience store worker has come to be um, so much more than a mere job. It's her way of, of you know, normalising life. She kind of becomes almost one with the convenience store. Um And she stays in it a lot longer than people want or expect, thus challenging this idea of it being transitory work. This is something you talk about in your essay. And as someone who works as a bookseller, which is a job in retail that many people stay in for a very long time, uh, including you, you've been there for nine years, you know, it's something that really starts to challenge this idea of retail work as just a, you know, transitory work that you do in between, you know, university and your quote, real job. Talk about some of the these issues that you discuss in your essay because what happens when a job, as you say, that's paid as unskilled labour continues on and becomes a job you're very good at? You know, what then happens, I guess? I guess um, part of the problem is that there isn't a sort of a natural progression of it where that experience that you've had of working there for years and years and all of the knowledge that you've built up, it doesn't really have like an outlet where you can become a like next level bookseller where you can specialise in something. So I guess some people get a little bit of that. They become the kids book specialist, but broadly there isn't a structure to move on in that field. So you've got people who've been there for far longer than I have who don't get that sense of career movement and so it means that it becomes a job that um, people might be really passionate about but there's no change there's no variety in it so I it also means that a lot of people have it as their kind of the stable job that makes the money alongside their passion projects so I work I'm lucky to work with writers and artists and musicians who have that as their day job and then they've got their creative pursuits that are funded by that retail work. But yeah, that's when also the amount that people are paid within retail comes to the forefront again, because essentially it's subsidising the creative field in this substantial way. And then if people can't make a lot of money off it, um, their creative pursuit kind of suffers on the side. Yeah, you you touch on that, of course, and and this other element, which is particular to bookstore work, but and I'm sure other sort of special uh, retail specialties, uh, where actually you know in order to be good at your job, you do quite a lot of extra labour. Um, many of it, uh, much of it, considered to be a labour of love if you love books, but reading a lot of books, um, staying current 
with what's out there so you can engage with uh, with people who come to buy the books on an intellectual level. Mm. You can give them advice about where to go. That takes a lot of time. Uh, you know, there's obviously a highly skilled component to that as well. So, you know, there are these elements too. And I think you touch on something that you've drawn from Emile Zola's book that we've mentioned earlier, Obonet Dedam, again, with that terrible pronunciation. Um, in that book, the uh, one of the central characters, Denise, um, you know, is able to sort of step outside of the, that traditional sphere of, you know, woman woman's work being in the home um, to actually, you know, rise up through the ranks and find some sense of empowerment. Um, but it's very much not necessarily uh, a positive that women, are, you know, seem to be overrepresented in these jobs or that the labour um, that is done by retail workers tends to be of this more kind of servile nature. Can you speak to that component of your essay? Um, yeah, I guess it's um, something that I've thought more and more about over the years. I definitely feel like it's a pretty good environment in which to observe the ways that um, women get treated in, in a in a workplace uh, by especially with that kind of there's an always unequal interaction happening so there's always that interaction between a customer service worker and a customer and that you know ingrained idea that the customer is always right or that you have to somehow serve them and please them which is exactly what the title is but it's um it becomes a little bit imbalanced a lot of the time well that already imbalanced situation can become more pronounced I guess um, when you're dealing with a lot of especially a lot of young women um, serving people in the community it just sometimes um, it's an odd balance where you sort of want to assert your own yourself and your rights and um, and at the same time present a sort of a happy smiling demeanor Mm. so I haven't quite (laughs) <laughs> figured out how to how to do that but uh, and yeah. should you is the question I don't know it's a good question I kind of I think when I was younger and newer to it I was um more positive and optimistic about the whole thing I didn't see the more sort of darker elements to it but I I've become maybe increasingly aware and increasingly angry as time goes by and so then it's harder and harder to put on that happy cheerful front you do mention uh, one episode where you're vacuuming uh, and someone approaches you and says, you make a great wife or something mm. similar. And then you ponder the kind of responses you could have given that were much more um, yep. damning of that comment. Uh, it's sort of an interesting, you know, uh, situation because you're in a sense sort of suggesting that the, the role that you're playing is very much an echo of a of an old role that women have played for a very long time, um, but continues to sort of be evident in these bricks and mortar retail situations Mm. now I I kind of want to discuss something that sort of you sidestep into in your piece um, and that's you know something of a little talked about um, element in the publishing industry and that is that many people particularly booksellers uh, want to transition from their retail job into a professional job and for many booksellers that job would be in publishing either as a published author or working um, as an editor or you know rising up through the ranks hopefully to a publisher and you start to consider what that actually means can you talk about some of what you you sort of ponder in this well I guess I have at the back of my head this idea that and I think a lot of people do that um, you need to pursue a meaningful work and 
and that picture of what meaningful work might be is shaped a lot by society and it's shaped also um, on a closer level by seeing for instance what my parents have done for their work and what the people around me have done for their work so um, it's sort of it's it weighed on my mind and I didn't know what I wanted to do and it suddenly became clear that bit by bit it became clear that publishing offered a way to kind of move from the skills and knowledge I'd built up in bookselling into an industry where there'd be more I hope prospective change and new experiences along the way um but yeah it's not sure where I was going with that sorry yeah, I mean I think yeah. within the piece that you you actually acknowledge that in fact the publishing industry has you know quite notoriously very low wages mm. uh, in fact not significantly more in some cases exactly the same as retail wages um so in fact you know what are you exchanging your work for mm. um and i think you you know you sort of really accurately pinpoint that it's an interesting time because we've just seen um, the, the workers at Penguin Random House successfully um, negotiate an enterprise bargaining agreement. Um, it's the first time we've sort of really had a, a unionised move like that uh, in the publishing industry as far as I know and certainly something you acknowledge here. Um, do you think it's a really good time to be talking about this, particularly for people like you who are at that cusp of deciding whether or not to go into the industry? There was a very interesting point that you raised that I hadn't heard raised before, um, and that is all of us know, those of us who've worked in, in any kind of publishing or media environment, that this idea of scarcity, that there's many people competing for the same job is often used, um, you know, not uh, overtly necessarily, but it's an implicit sort of, a, I guess, a stick to not really complain about wages. Um, it's just something that I think we all quietly agree upon, um, you know, but in fact that may not be as much of a concern as perhaps we think it is. Yeah, well, definitely. And one of the one of the comments that I'd get a lot in the bookshop, usually from people who um, seemed, certainly seemed to be spending amounts of money that suggested they had a pretty stable and stable job, a job that would definitely be considered a real job. And they would often say, oh, I wish I worked here. And so there was a sort of sense that there's something romantic and lovely and charming about working in a bookshop, which sometimes there is. And I think that the same idea kind of holds for publishing jobs. I, I guess that's probably the reason why they so often pop up as the job that a character in a TV show or movie has, because it's a little bit, people can understand kind of what it is. They have some general interest in publishing, even if they're not interested in working in the field, because they interact with the um, products that the publishing industry produces and so it's seen as something quite desirable and that same desire I think is used as a way to kind of um, well it attracts people who have a passion for that work and who really want to be there which again feeds into that idea that we can't really advocate for our pay rises for the working conditions because just the chance to work there alone is so desirable that someone with a um, you know quote unquote real job with you know a big salary or whatever might even give it up to go and work in a field that they could make less money in because it's something they're passionate about so I think that that is part of the reason why these sorts of discussions around um, negotiating for EBAs have probably not been at the forefront for a, a long time um, and it's yeah if you can create a story where people are desperate to work in a particular industry then and that there's always someone at the door waiting to to come in and take your place then 
it feels precarious, even if that doesn't necessarily reflect the actual stability and financial viability of the industry. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined today by Freya Howarth, and we're discussing her her literary essay that's just been published in Overland. It's called Retail Therapy, and uh, we're talking about some of the issues that it covers, but I'd also really like to focus on the form itself a little bit more. Uh, it is a literary essay, and there's some conventions that are associated with it. Uh, we talked at the top of this this uh, segment about how you started with a reference to a book. Um, there is this idea, I suppose, that, uh, you know, that you draw from from life when you're talking about uh, real things that are happening. But the literary essay, like many sort of cultural artefacts, draws from culture and how it reflects uh, our experience. And, you know, of course, both of us here are very much uh, involved in, in books and, and what they can teach us about ourselves. You know, what what do you think, what role do you think now literary essays really play in covering, in covering issues that, you know, the news, I guess, or Twitter or whatever else is looking at? Well, I guess for a start, they sort of invite maybe a slower uh, way of reading about an issue that it's not necessarily, it might relate to something that has some uh, topical urgency, but it's usually contemplated perhaps on a longer on, in a longer time frame, which is, I guess, why I looked at um, books going back as far as the 19th century, uh, 19th century, because I felt like um, it offered a perspective that was longer term um, and that hopefully also means that even once, you know, however the penalty rate discussions go, however all these EBA um, negotiations go for various companies, that there's hopefully something in there that's um, going to be relevant beyond that because I think questions about uh, the nature of work and how we relate our our identity to what we do for a living uh, will remain relevant beyond the immediate topical nature of the discussion. I think that's a really wonderful point because of course you know we live in a sort of you know instant like Twitter-based sort of, you know, echo chamber, I guess, that, you know, topics burn out very, very quickly. And books are slow-burning beasts, uh, mm. particularly novels, which is what you've chosen to draw on with this, with this literary essay, where you really do get to see the internal lives of characters or at least how they're characterised by their authors, which gives you a whole other sort of set of references. Do you think uh, increasingly, and, and maybe from your own experience, uh, that literary essays are playing a more central role in how we start to, you know, formulate the world or even long form just generally, because it's something that I've I've been gravitating to more and more once again to, to get a more kind of considered perspective on things. Yeah, I guess um, as some of our reading, uh, this is something we feel in the bookshop too, but as a lot of our reading attention shifts to online reading options, I think that um, it's given this great opportunity for long form writing to kind of in, in lots of different genres, but to to really get a wider readership because it's the sort of thing that you can read on your phone on your commute to work, or um, it's sort of just readily accessible. And we get sort of bombarded, but um, with articles from different sources where you almost potentially 
you read the headline and you click onto it before you even re- realise where you're going. It might not be a site that you navigated towards deliberately so much as something that people share and that you get hold of that way. So I think that um, it's amongst all of the you know, quick news bulletins, um, people will get sucked into these sort of longer, more contemplative pieces. Um, so I guess that it does feel like there's a big window for people to use that to try to understand the world as it is. Yeah, that's really uh, it's a wonderful point. Um, Freya, I think we're coming up to the end of our time here. I very much hope in all your pondering about work that you do consider keeping uh, writing and particularly the literary essay form front of mind because I very much look forward to seeing what else you have to say. Thank, Thank you so much. You. Thank you so much. That was uh, Freya Howith uh, discussing her essay, Retail Therapy, out now in Overland. Coming up next, Mandy Beaumont on her new racial shortlisted collection, Wild Fearless Chests, and how prizes and fellowships might help in the path to publishing. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, Mandy uh, Beaufort has been shortlisted for a number of awards, including the Rischel Prize for Emerging Writers. Her short story, Emily, won the Moth Short Story Prize, and she's been a Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow. This has all led to Hachette publishing her debut short story collection, Wild Fearless Chests is filled with darkly themed, lyrically rendered short stories. And Mandy joins me now to discuss the role prizes and fellowships have played in her path to publishing and how she crafts her short stories. And just a content warning, our discussion of the book may cover topics including sexual and family violence. Mandy, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me, Mel. Now, congratulations on your new collection. Thanks, I want to talk a little bit about how this, you know, the somewhat tortuous path (laughs) to publishing, to put it mildly. Um, Many people who listen to this show might, you know, may be interested in writing or the publishing process and don't really have a a strong idea of how you go about getting published. There is that infamous slush pile. Uh, And anyone who's uh, kind of ever indulged in any kind of book publishing sort of pop culture uh, will know a little bit about what that is. It's sort of when you send books into publishers, there's a massive pile and someone has to get to reading it in a small publishing house that can can take a while to do. So uh, books can languish there for some time. You've done something that has helped you sort of, I guess, navigate the slush pile, if you like. I'd love you to talk to that. Yeah, I'm, Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that prizes, fellowships, scholarships play an important part in both the, the, the landscape of Australian writing to um, find and encourage new writing. Um, and I think that my headspace has always been, and I've been writing for a long time and putting things in for a long time and getting rejected for a long time. Um, I've always had the headspace of like fingers in every pie. Um, so I'm a real advocate for just chucking in. If the work is good and you believe in it and you, you chuck it into everything you can. Um, and I think for me, often I've been told in the past, 
I love your writing, but can't deal with the themes or vice versa. And I think I've just have never compromised on the way I write. And my work has developed and got better, obviously, with time and practice like a muscle. But I've never compromised on um, putting on my work and kept putting it in. So every opportunity that comes in, um, and I think also on the back end of that, putting it into lots of things that when they're available and you notice them and see them pop up on your social media or wherever they are, but also not taking rejections badly. Once you put them out there, forget that you've put them out there. So if it's a win, fantastic. And if it's a rejection, uh, it doesn't it doesn't sort of stifle that process for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, when I, I teach uh, writing classes and editing classes, and one of the things I, I will often say to people is that, you know, editors are looking for good writers. Mm. And once they have you, they'll hold on to you like a death grip, yeah. basically. It's just, you know, really coming to the attention of an editor. Many editors are time poor. They don't necessarily... Mm. Uh, you know, have huge amounts of, um, you know, extra time on their their hands to sort of go away and read things. Uh, mm. Publishers particularly are in that that book, uh, that sort of position. When looking for books, they might find it easier to sort of use a sorting hat like a prize mm. or um, going in to see other books that have, re- uh, you know, writers who've received commendations for short stories that they've written. Mm. Uh, things like that can really help a publisher just you know, I guess, see something that they might be interested in that they'd miss in the slush pile. Yeah, and I agree. Like, for me, this sort of the movement of this and the the, the development of this book, as you see it in front of you now, was, you know, winning the Moth Short Story, which, which is a huge international award, oh, I don't know, maybe six years ago or something. And then from that just went, oh, okay, I'm going to keep it going. Like, it just motivates you to get a bit more. Um, and I think, you know, there's been, a, there's been a fair few wins or shortlists in between now and then. Um, and the last couple of years it's been the Hewitt the Dorothy Hewitt Award and the Ritual Prize which has led to the publishing of this book and it's quite interesting the publisher now so I'm now signed with them obviously but the book and it's very much oh god you've had so many wins in here so publishers do take note of the wins mm. and they do look at that stuff so I think I could go in there cold but people already know not everyone obviously but people already know my work they've seen it out there both in the industry and wider than that with wins and shortlists and getting my work out there so I think it does matter when publishers are looking to bring up a new a relatively unknown talent into their ranks. I think it's important. Now, you did talk about not compromising on your work and what yep. you do, and I can certainly see why um, some publishers or certain um, risk-averse, uh, like, you know, publishers may have an issue with some of the subject matter because you don't shy from incredibly difficult themes. Yep. Uh, sexual violence, family violence are a feature of many of these stories mm. and really the level of detail in them is quite uh, is quite high. Yep. But you write with this incredible lyricism. There's a real sort of, you know, to your language that the and the descriptions are very sort of visceral. Mm. Um, so it's an odd sort of like I, I found it a very kind of uneasy marriage of, of form and substance. Um, you know, many of the characters, because of this quite sort of lyrical rendering, felt somehow dissociated from the things that they were experiencing, uh, which again added to that feeling of like, I guess, you know, that that thing that trauma creates mm. in a mind. Yep. Can you talk about firstly you know, the topics that you've been drawn to and then yeah. how you've chosen to write them. Um, I've always been really interested and the book is an exploration of misplaced women or women whose stories have been unheard and it's done through fiction. I think that's a really exciting space for writers to be working in now and it's not a widespread practice in Australia by any means. Um, I didn't start the book or the collection thinking I'm going to write about 
all of these themes, like you said. I think I just wanted to talk about and write the lived experiences that I had and the lived experiences that I know other girlfriends have had, women have had, I've heard in the news. These are stories that people are connecting with because they go, oh, jeez, even though it didn't happen to me, I know of this, I've heard of this, I've seen this. So the starting out was just to write some stories and the the lyricism and the poetic sort of nature of that I'm first and foremost a literary writer and write on many themes, but the collection came together with all those, they developed this like, meta-narrative across them and all these themes started to blend. Um, but the lyricism and the poetic gives relief in the work and gives a beauty up against the harshness of it, I think. Mm. Um, I think there is a lot of harsh topics in there, but that lyricism keeps driving the narrative. It keeps making it palatable, I suppose. This is something I've actually been pondering. I've read uh, another book recently, uh, a non-fiction, um, a quite, you know, absolutely excoriating sort of um, picture of what it's like to go through extreme sexual abuse. Um, and I'm, I start to wonder a little bit to what extent is it really important to sort of cover and think about those themes and to what extent can it in fact be in, a, mm. in its own way a traumatic experience. Mm. And I did consider that while reading your book because in a sense you're sort of you're lulling the reader with this with this quite lovely writing but you know these themes do sort of start to you know they're it's a horrible infection in our society. Yeah, and I'm wondering, do, you know, we want to reflect these things, but at the same time, when does reflection tip over into another sort of area? Yeah, and I think there's a really nice line between this, a really, and especially in this book and my writing, there's a really nice line between the fiction and the literary craft and the real stories and the, through fiction. Like, I think there's a lovely space for people to um, explore and I think it's a lovely space for women to connect with and, and the book is a call for collective voices um, and I think it's also a lovely place for um, those who are not women to actually really listen and start engaging and start talking and that it is that mix-up that people go, I'm a little bit, where do I sit in this? So I think as a form, it's a really exciting place to be in. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because, again, there's, you know, there's questions of, you know, do we want to kind of expound stories of women being attacked or hurt or injured or raped? You know, it, how much of that being a part of our society is um, is important to expose and how much mm. of it is us, you know, getting some kind of weird titillation from that. Mm. <clears throat> I'm not for a second <clears throat> suggesting that's true of your books. Yep. I think it's very different coming from a, a, a female writer's perspective as well. Um, but I do start to wonder at that, that these narratives um, – can actually affect us. And I think they do. And I did a research master's many moons ago on the work of Charles Bukowski, who, um, known misogynist in all of his work, and he plays a big influence in my writing. And like, I recognise his work is grossly misogynist. Um, but my work starts to tip those narratives on the head. And I do that with many of the things. There's many, there's references to Hemingway in there, Kafka, lots of, lots of like the canon, which is obviously mm. a male canon, lots of references to the canon because they really informed me. But now writing this, it's through a feminist lens, which on a literary sort of scope is a really nice space to sit in as well. So it's a bit of a mashup of all these kind of levels of ideas and themes. If you've just joined us, I'm talking to Mandy Beaumont. Um, while my voice is slowly getting cracklier, about her latest book, Wild Fearless Chest. It is, in fact, her debut collection. Um, and, Mandy, we have discussed a little bit about, you know, what it's like to embark on on a new collection of short stories, but you're very much anything but a new 
writer. And I sort of wanted to address that because, again, as someone who has, you know, just published their first collection, there is that sort of, I guess, you know, framing of interviews and other things that you're a first-time author um, or you're a new talent. Um, How hard is it to sort of like really stomach that, I guess, when when you've been practising your craft for a long time? time um, for it to you know to be suddenly recognized in in print is it does it feel a little bit like a mixed blessing it's weird it's kind of um it's I've always been I've always identified as a writer for a very long time and now I suppose I am new to a lot of people because now it's on a more of a national scale and people are talking to me in different ways um so it's exciting for me to actually get that work into the hands of other people and I'm not uh it doesn't bother me in any way um but also I think I'm in a nice position I'm 42 and I've worked really hard on my craft. So I'm actually, I think I couldn't have written this book. Obviously for the, the, the era that we're in now is an important time for this book, but I couldn't have written this book as well as I think I have 20 years ago. So I think it's a lovely time for me to come out there and do this. Absolutely. And yeah. I do want to um, mention at least one of the stories in this book in which you you really focus on a, you know, a, a particular sort of role, I guess, that books play in one, uh, you know, one of your protagonist's lives uh, when, you know, she sort of finds herself, uh, you know, going to books as a a sort of window into a world outside of this world of violence and um, I guess limited options that she finds herself in. Mm. I sort of felt that, I mean, as you say, many people feel a kinship with one of these stories potentially. Mm. That's one, um, not necessarily um, some of the themes in that book, but this idea that, that books really do give you a window into another life. That's cool. I love that. Um, and it is um, it is a sad and horrific story that centres around that concept, but the, the a lot of the stories you'll see in there, there are full-on themes and everything else, but there's a real care. There's a, there's a notion of care in the book. There's a notion of solace. There's a notion of finding oneself and other women to collectivise. So I think that, again, brings down that, you know, that poetic next to those heavy themes. Uh, before we leave this uh, this chat, because we're coming up very close to the end of the show, I do just want to touch on the craft of short story writing. Mm. We've talked about it a little bit on the show. Um, quite often I'm discussing with authors uh, their long-form uh fiction often Um, but short stories present a very different uh, set of circumstances challenges I guess what drew you to the short story writing form the short story form for me makes the individual universal I think there's such a beautiful beautiful notion of containment in short stories that you can't get in a novel Um, and I think that with this collection they're those brutal stories and you need a bit of a break between them so it allows me to go full ball no compromises brutal as hell and then you can sit back and make your cup of tea and go have a cigarette and come back to it so (laughs) for me that's why I wrote this and I think the form of of, there's a real beauty in each line there's a real attention to that especially in literary short stories. Yeah and I think uh, I guess we're increasingly living in an era of you know where attention spans are diminishing yeah. diminishing i mean it's it's something of a cliche to to observe this but i do remember not that long ago uh a group of publishers at a at a literary event telling prospective or pitching writers that the short story was dead um oh that old chestnut yeah, well i mean <laughs> and yet there we are now seeing many many collections coming out and that's been in the intervening decade or so yeah is that something that you sort of really felt yourself are you a consumer of short stories i am a consumer of short stories but i also think that the figures show that 
they're, they're not dying. They're not, and they're also not having a resurgence. I think short stories are the place that they've been in. And I think whether you write as a writer in poetry, short stories, fiction, whatever, novels, whatever, if the writing's good, it should stand up. And I think that the, I think the call out to have bigger publishers take a chance on that is really pertinent. I mean, there's not many huge big publishers like Hachette that are taking that chance. You'll see a lot of the short stories are coming out through smaller presses. So I think the bigger publishers have a bit of a window to experiment and play with that. So I'd love to see it happen more. Mandy, uh, thank you so much for coming in to talk about your short story collection. I am wondering if you, uh, now that you have a publishing contract um, and the possibility of new publication, a lot more readily available, I guess, what you think you might be embarking on next? I've got a two-book deal with Hachette, which is really exciting. So um, the next book will be a full-length novel, so my debut novel, um, which will be called My Heart is an Ocean, which explores the notion of collective revolt by women through dark and sort of gothic landscapes in Australia. So, Well, uh, mm. Mandy Beaumont, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks, Mel. That was, of course, Mandy Beaumont, who came in to talk today about Wild Fearless Chests, her debut short story collection, which is out now through Hachette. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.